all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Follow us Insta, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitch at All Bad Things Pod. Email us at allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group and our Discord. Do all of those things in that order. Yes. <sighs> so what did you do tonight? Oh, so many things. It was exhausting. <laughs> I you played a gig, right? I played a gig eventually after the torrential downpour that delayed it. Um, attempting to cover up everything, wait until a sufficient amount of time had passed with the lightning, rewrite the set list for the fourth time. Nobody got electrocuted. That's First good. win. And you weren't exaggerating about the fourth time running the set list. No, I was not. Yes, <laughs> the set list was as... It was a nightmare. Yes, as of Wednesday, it was finalized. And in 24 hours, it was revised three times, so... There you go. Yep. It's illnesses and voices, and apparently the Tampa Bay Lightning and Taylor Swift made it impossible for one of our vocalists to leave Tampa tonight. Oh, interesting. I guess it was their closing game... Not Taylor Swift, obviously. <laughs> they Bay. have a regular season? Uh, maybe, I guess. Yeah. I thought the regular season was over yesterday, but... Uh, the Canes uh, didn't have their last game tonight? They had it last night. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. We're, we're back in the playoffs for the fifth straight season. Uh, go Canes. Third straight division title. Very good. Oh, so they did get the division. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Okay. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> I won't be able to go to any games, which mm. really sucks. But well, in the first round, in although we're not all unless that. it if it goes to game seven, I'll be able to go to that. But okay, I, but I don't want it to go to game yeah. seven. Yeah, <laughs> but you're also not feeling super confident that they'll make it out of the first round, huh? Well, I mean, I'm not feeling super confident that they're going to get very far. Mm-hmm. They're just yeah, they don't have such for one thing. Well, I mean that certainly doesn't help, but uh, they they are they're just kind of out of gas. Like you can see it. I mean the. The regular season's fucking long. It's yeah. It's literally six months long. Yeah. And they started off well. They started off kind of cold, and they were really hot like midway mm-hmm. through the season. From like games like twenty five to sixty, they were probably like the best team in the league. And then the last twenty games, they've just and Aho had a big slump too, right? He's had a couple of them. Yeah. I mean, he still wound up with sixty seven points, something which is anybody but you will just take expect that. more. When you're he missed eight very games talented. Too. Oh, really? What happened? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but he missed eight games. It might have been a concussion. Um, but yeah, sixty-seven points is still pretty good. But that's oh, not yeah. good. That's not good for him. But anyway, we'll see. Uh, so this concludes the Kaniac Sports Cast. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's it's. Uh, here's the thing, though. It's exciting to live in an NHL city, especially during playoff time. Mm-hmm. Especially when your team is in the playoffs. And being in the South, which isn't something you probably figured would happen necessarily when you were living in Greenville. No, certainly not here. 
Like, I figured if North Carolina would have had an NHL team, they would have been in Charlotte, Yeah. Here. Well, that's where the football and uh, mm-hmm. basketball teams all the, are. All the teams have been for the major league sport. Is there still a Charlotte basketball team? Because they mm-hmm. went the away Hornets. and came yeah. back, right? Yeah. Were they the Pelicans at some point? They went away and became, yes, the New Orleans Hornets, who are now the New Orleans Pelicans. But then they They rebooted? returned as the Charlotte Bobcats as an expansion team. And then when New One Orleans point. changed their name to the Pelicans... Uh, Charlotte got the rights to the Hornets name back. So weird. So this is their, uh, officially this is their second iteration as the uh, Charlotte Hornets with the Bobcats in between. I liked the Bobcats though. I liked the... <laughs> the Charlotte Horncats. Yeah, but I liked the Bobcats. I thought it was a good name. Or the Bobnets. Yeah, there are Bobcats in Bobcats, North Carolina. There are, there are Hornets too, to yes, be fair. Yes, there are. Plenty of both. Yes. Should be the mosquitoes. The mosquitoes here. No, are awful. mosquitoes is a uh, that's a minor league team name. You can't have a major league team do that. Well, they're yeah. fucking annoying. I'll tell you that. <laughs> All right, guess what? I am officially shutting this down at part four. We are done okay. after today. All right, challenger part four. This installment I am entitling "The Future Is Not Free." So. Remind me where we left off again. Yeah, because it's been like a week or so since we last recorded, right? And now yeah. we're going on a marathon. Yes, we are. <laughs> hoarding uh, episodes in the queue. So um, we were talking about the O-Ring and the Rogers Commission. That's where I thought right? we left we off. I wasn't sure how far we went. I didn't remember exactly how far we and went. And we talked that. about... Um, well, I'm going to kind okay. of summarize Recap a little it. bit. Yeah. Um, season season one episode three <laughs> recap yes <laughs> and if you want to skip intro like on netflix just like fast forward like, 30 yeah, seconds you, you can't <laughs> you just gonna have to put up with it so for the last time on january 28th 1986 the u.s space shuttle challenger exploded shortly well quote unquote exploded we talked about that too exploded shortly after launch in front of an international television audience of millions killing all seven people on board the incident is often described as a defining moment in the lives of those who witnessed it. Primary sources for this episode are America Space, Consulting Newsline, the Roger Commission Report, Rogers Commission Report, and Space Safety Magazine. All right. Let's finish this thing. All right. <laughs> Let's do it. So last week, yeah, we got deep, deep, deep into the weeds about gaskets. O-rings, joints, and how NASA officials did not properly address concerns about the design of the joints on the shuttle solid rocket booster and or SRBs and their effects on the O-rings or gaskets that sealed them. So that's kind of where we were, mm-hmm. right? Engineers were raising concerns and they just weren't getting addressed. So this week we're picking things up as NASA is moving ahead with the SRB design that includes very iffy joints that can put stress on the O-rings between them that can either break them down or cause them not to properly seal. We talk about the extrusion, remember, mm-hmm. of the O-rings mm-hmm. and all that, and the primary and secondary, and was, was that meant to be a redundant system or not? You and know, just weather-wise, they weren't. Mm-hmm. They weren't meant to hold up in the condition that they were in. On top of everything else, on top of faulty design yeah. issues, absolutely. The the cold weather was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And, it, and it's really, it makes it even more tragic 
to know that this could have been prevented. And there were people that knew it could have been prevented. And, and boy, and, should it have been yeah. so much longer. And can you imagine, like, the guilt that those people probably <laughs> still feel? Like, I didn't push hard enough. I didn't go there to the right person. And... We, we did see some of that in the Challenger yes, documentary, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Of course and you would the, feel that way. The sad thing is that usually it's the people who tried but couldn't. The hardest that fucking get fucked over. And and feel the worst about mm-hmm. it because they're the people with the actual consciences, which is why they, yeah. you know, why they feel so badly and why they tried to stop it but couldn't. So there's it's almost like a survivor's guilt type of thing, right? I mean, I, I did watch, uh, not to get political, Mm-mm. but I did watch a very good uh, 9-11 Document- really? documentary from the point of view of the people who worked in intelligence not like the main officials is but... that the the one with all the there was a lot of women yes. involved in. i, I saw that called. documentary too and they basically got completely shat on oh fuck and yeah they were the fall they were the fall they were people. the fall people they really were because they're like oh we didn't have enough and they're they're sitting there like we were we like screaming like at the top again of our lungs and again and again that something like yeah. this was yeah like in the works. The intelligence community knew well about it, and the alarms were raised. Yeah. The red flags were raised. Yeah. And they just got shit on instead. Mm-hmm. And because, it was... Because somebody, somebody's got to be the political fall boy. Right. And as I recall, it was many women trying to raise mm-hmm. the... Like, overwhelmingly women. And they were the basically just staffers community. that were, like, yeah. gathering the... Intel, right? They're, they like, data to, analysts, basically. But they had to have certain clearances, so yes. they knew certain things. And they had and to they understand just, what yes. they were looking at, yeah. And exactly. it's, like, it's like, these are the people that are mm-hmm. actually doing the fucking work, not mm-hmm. not the guy you see in front of the microphone spouting fucking nonsense. Oh, my nonsense. God, no, not at all. Um, all right, so by this point... This SRB design has made it to the point where shuttle missions are taking place. So, it's important to note that this design of the SRBs was the case for all shuttles taking off prior to the Challenger disaster. Meaning, I think it was, what, the 25th total shuttle mission that Challenger was? And it was its 10th? That means that 24 times the same thing could have happened. Sure. Or... A different version yeah. because the O-rings could have failed. And we'll learn they very nearly did multiple times. So That's right. Yeah. I kinda yeah, I kinda know about this. Right. But. So uh I, I wrote uh Challenger's tenth flight was not the first shuttle flight with O-ring problems. Not by a long shot, or not by a moonshot. <laughs> so <laughs> but um uh, Take my wife, please. <laughs> I take my I, wife everywhere, but she always finds her way home. Do you think in a past life I was a borscht belt comedian? Oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. That's entirely possible. I was gonna. I was gonna keep going with the one-liners. Oh, okay, but... <laughs> from the God, uh, not from the Godfather. Uh, Goodfellas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, okay. The Shecky Green. But yeah. No, it was uh, Henny Youngman. Oh, Henny Youngman. Henny Youngman. <laughs> Same difference. Honestly. Wonderful crowd. Take my wife, please. The but back in the day, the rim shot really was like because there was a live band with them. Yeah, yeah, and it was basically like the audience cue to laugh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, so the first do- documented problem with the SRB gaskets in flight was on the second ever space shuttle mission, which was this was was also Discovery's second mission. Or sorry, not Discovery, Columbia. Sorry, got my space shells mixed up. Columbia's second flight. 
because it was the only shuttle in the fleet initially, they found erosion on the primary O-ring of the right SRB. Not good. The damage was pretty extensive, but it was not included in a flight readiness review for the next shuttle mission. So that's, you know, like when, hey, we need to double check these things because we noticed this on the previous. Let's make sure it's working, you know, on this. Uh, that, that can be part of that flight readiness. Um, uh, and that just took place just a few months later. And on top of that, like when an O-ring leak or when O-ring corrodes, like it's saying it, it erodes or, or extrudes or fails, it's leaking something. It, that's how you know. Well, the that's that's the point, that, right? Mm-hmm. That's like that's what like what I said. Like eighty percent of the time, when our line shuts down, the, mm-hmm. that's the first thing that we check because that's usually what it is. Now, that's, this isn't saying that this I don't think O-ring in this case failed, it did. right? Correct. But it it was damaged. Right. And the whole point is these things you are not supposed to be know, damaged. No. To keep that seal, they need to be intact. The whole point of it, right? The whole point of it is to stay intact, right. so it keeps the other things. Now maybe like, they can't be reused multiple times or not. something. You know, you, you switch probably them out a one every shot time. Deal. Yeah, I'm thinking it's a one shot thing. But it just so as to keep them, you know, keep the integrity of the actual component. What but. they were most likely doing is keeping the. Like, not reusing them, but keeping them to study. Like, what did it do under this pressure, well, that exa- pressure? Well, they, that's the thing. Yeah. These SRBs were obviously dismantled because yeah. they found this damage. Yeah. Right? They right, found correct. The... They wouldn't have found it if they if they didn't... Uh, or they put it up Not against... investigate it, per se, but just go over, like, what happened. Right, like... or maybe they tested the joint as part of, like, sure. readiness, for, and they're like, ooh, and then took like, it apart uh, and Pressure's found off it. here. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an angle off over here. Like, right. Exactly. I mean, the smallest fucking thing. We're talking about rocket boosters mm-hmm. going into space. Mm-hmm. Like, everything has to work perfectly. And Literally. sometimes, even mm-hmm. when it doesn't, it still makes it. Yeah. That... Uh, uh, wildly, yes. Sometimes yeah. they luck out. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes... But you don't want to don't want to be a part of that sometimes. Exactly. Because sometimes... It, it goes the other way. It. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So... There was extensive damage. It wasn't included in the flight readiness review, but Thiokol, so we're talking about Morton Thiokol. Remember, we talked about them, the contractor that was responsible for the solid rocket boosters. Did they, and did the design of them as well. Thiokol did take notice of the problem, and they initially thought the answer might lie in the putty that they were using in the joint. So they kind of went down that path working on testing the putty. Spoiler alert. Problem was not the putty. No, <laughs> it was the not. entire joint. Um, but you got you've got to design. find that out though. Yeah. Yes, but you should probably find it out and figure it out definitively prior to sending up another space shuttle. Correct. Which did not happen. Oh well, it's true. So Challenger's fourth flight. So now we're a little farther on in um, the shuttle program. Challenger's fourth flight, STS forty one B, carrying Ron McNair. You know, who died in mm-hmm. Challenger. Um, and that was the famous, he played the saxophone in space during that mission. He dodged a bullet in his first Challenger flight. Didn't look out on the second one. So when the SRBs were recovered, there was erosion damage found on two O-rings in the right <sighs> SRB. Thiokol presented a report on the issue and told NASA, but it's okay. The thing is, these secondary gaskets would have been the backup, right? We have a primary and a secondary gasket. 
these primary gaskets, there were some issues, but the secondary gaskets kicked in. So that was that was great, right? But remember, there was all that confusion. We talked about this last week as to whether the secondary gasket was even meant to be a backup or whether it was meant to be just used for testing purposes. Remember when I quoted the uh, Rogers Commission in the last uh, a back and forth between Rogers and one of the I think it was one of the Thiokol people, I forget, um, about like, wait, so I'm trying to get this straight. Is this a, like, this is not a backup? And then the guy answered and didn't answer the question. Yeah. And I was like, confusing. Uh, Keith Coates, then the chief engineer, special projects office at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, which was uh, not liaising, but, you know, they were the ones responsible for the SRB program. Sure disagreed with Thiokol's reasoning and wrote his boss, so this is Keith Coates, wrote his boss, George Hardy, to express his concern. So now at this point, like, there's some serious flags being raised by various engineers. Uh, the problem was identified. Okay, so this engineer is bring this chief engineer is bringing this up, that this is a problem, um, and they're, take, they're kind of taking it up the chain of command. So they identified the problem, they tracked it at Marshall, but it was not considered to be a big enough problem to warrant action. A report stated, quote, possibility exists for some O-ring erosion mm. on future flights, some. end quote. Mm -hmm. The same report also stated, quote, this is not a constraint to future launches, end quote. Spoiler alert, it absolutely was a constraint to future launches. Um, I think in that context, they're thinking, well, we'll figure this out as we go along. But for now, we're going to keep doing this. But yeah. still. Yeah. <laughs> O-ring erosion was found on five other Ooh. shuttle missions before the Challenger disaster. Mm. And this O-ring thing started... So, so it wasn't anything new. Not even close. No, this happened time and time again. Um, and it started getting real. Like, to, to really become a potential, not just, eh, this is a little weird, maybe the joint is a little faulty, maybe we need to do something with the putty, but like, uh-oh. Um, on Discovery's third mission, one year before the disaster. So this was the flight that Ellison Onizuka, also of the Challenger crew... Uh, he took, he, he also dodged a bullet, right? Correct. He and Ron McNair ended up on flights with O-ring problems that they discovered after yeah, the fact. Crazy. So the temperatures that launch were not nearly as low as they would wind up being for the Challenger, right? That's, that was in like low twenties, um, which is bizarre for, um, central Florida in at any time of the year, let alone, um, well, no, it was in January, so that would make sense. But it was still relatively cool. It was down to, especially for Florida, it was down to just below 52 degrees Fahrenheit or 11 degrees Celsius. And the launch was delayed due to the fact that temperatures had dropped too low. Um, after a sort of abbreviated but otherwise successful mission, Discovery's recovered SRBs showed not just erosion to the primary gasket, but down into the secondary gasket as yeah, well. That was the first time that happened. This quote-unquote backup is super, now getting eroded. That is super not very good. That's very concerning, right? Mm -hmm. When it's getting down to the second one, because the second one's there to 
Well, or is it? We don't know at this point. It's not really meant to be a redundant system, apparently. But even if it was taken to be that way, now that's failing, right? Yeah, that's not going to work out either. No, not at all. Under these Uh, conditions. Right. Despite this problem, Larry Malloy, who we mentioned in last week's episode, is the guy trying to make things sound great at NASA during the Rogers Commission hearing, was more concerned about this issue causing delays in launches than he was with this being an actual safety issue. In advance of the next shuttle missions flight the next month, Thiokol concluded that, quote, low temperature enhanced prob- probability of blow-by, which is erosion, the condition is not desirable, but is acceptable, end quote. Not desirable, but yeah. acceptable. Because it's not your ass going up in the rocket. Mm-hmm. Or just the like, idea... Like, could, you, could you imagine like if you got on any form of public trans- transportation and right. their, their slogan was, not desirable, <laughs> but, acceptable. but acceptable. Like, would you no. get on that? The, the <laughs> correct application of that phrase would be in something like... Um, your AC is not working very well, and so like it can't cool below like seventy eight in the summer. Which that we, is not desirable. Yeah. <laughs> it's not desirable, but it's technically acceptable, right? Like yeah. you're not gonna, uh, you're not gonna it, overheat. At least it wasn't ninety in the house. Exactly. <laughs> it was only seventy eight. <laughs> yes. That is the only type of low stakes context that that needs to yeah. you know apply to. It doesn't. It doesn't need to apply to uh, being shot into outer space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, it's not desirable, but it's acceptable. What this report also did, it was a very key statement. Low temperature enhanced probability of blow-by. It shows that NASA was aware that cold sure. weather affected the gaskets. Mm-hmm. And this was before. They were aware that there was a risk. For sure. They were to aware. It, to put it lightly. They were aware that in 52 degrees... That was a low temperature that caused risk. Yeah, we're in the high 20s. Low 20s. Or low 20s. That, then they went on to launch Challenger in like 30 degrees lower temperature. Yeah. Which is a choice. Yeah. One of the people who saw the problems with the gaskets and was concerned in a way that would indicate it was not acceptable for the SBO O-ring, sorry, SRB O-rings to erode was Martin Thiokol engineer Roger Beaujolais. And his cons- he's often, like, cited as, like, the tragic figure in this, like, the person who really tried to raise who, the alarm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, yeah. And his concerns were only heightened after Challenger's seventh launch in April 1985. It again indicated that the double gasket structure was doing anything but providing a properly redundant system. This second close call was enough for Larry Malloy to institute a launch constraint on the SRBs. So being like, hey, there is like a, we should not launch these SRBs issue. He, he literally put that out. And then he waived it. Every time on the shuttle launches through Challenger. Hmm. So essentially performative, right? Yeah. Like, oh, yes, yes, yes. We're putting out this basically like this stop order, this warning. It's all good. But you know what? For this one, it's fine. Oh, for this one, it's fine. Oh, for this one, it's fine. You know, like, and just kept doing that. Um, yeah. So I guess it was meant to pretend to be a mitigation measure or something. So at the <laughs> end. Pretend to be. Exactly. Being the proper words. Performative. 
Uh, at the end of July 1985, in a memo to Bob Lund, the VP of Engineering at Thiokol, Beaujolais wrote that if another O-ring issue like this happened in another shuttle, quote, the result would be a catastrophe, uh, sorry, the result would be a catastrophe of the highest order loss of human life, end quote. This guy yeah. saw the writing on the wall and stated it. He said, this I'm, will I'm, be a catastrophe and people will die. said, I'm just going to spell it out. And he was 100% right. And he, he said that. Like, he was, he was very clear. Um, and to be clear, he was not the only one to be concerned. Sure. Um, he just is largely credited with being the one who led the way vocalizing those mm. concerns. But so despite this being written out, like people could die because of this, um, when Thiokol and Marshall Space Flight Center briefed NASA headquarters on the O-ring issue, they stated it was safe. For the shuttles to continue flying as is with the SRB design. So that fall, when Challenger flew its ninth and final successful mission, once again, there was evidence of O-ring erosion in the SRBs, though neither was addressed in the flight readiness review for the next Challenger mission, which would was the disaster. Um, in fact, Morton Thiokol requested, like, hey, can we just consider this whole O-ring thing a non-issue? Can we say yeah. case closed here? Um, the answer is no. <laughs> no, you cannot. That's not how it works. <laughs> By the time January 1986 rolled around, NASA was basically like a shuttle flying machine. They were pumping out missions like nobody's business. They were cramming in as many launches as they possibly could in a year. And they were not planning to stop there. Starting in 1987, the agency planned to launch up to 24 shuttles annually. That's a lot. It's like every two that's, weeks, basically. I was just going to say. Pretty close to it. Yeah. Just uh, under it. Yes. Now, this was a big problem, considering that even attempting 10 missions in a year was stretching everyone involved in the project to their limit, including contractors like Thiokol who were in turn routinely pushing their workers to 12-hour shifts six days a week, which you can relate to. You have done that. <laughs> I am doing that currently. Not not those shifts. Not 12-hour shift, 12 shifts six days a week. Yeah. Um, but you have, right? You mm -hmm. did at your old job. Yeah, at two of my old jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, six days a week, that's rough. Three three days in a row is rough when well, you have a 12-hour day. Yeah, with 12 hours, that's, that is tough. Yep. The pressure to perform wasn't even let up on when the program received a huge budget cut in 1985. <laughs> yeah. That means you that's need to work harder gonna, with fewer people. Say, that's not gonna, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's not going to help things. One of the common resulting practices was something called cannibalism, where if a shuttle needed a part and it wasn't in stock, which only about 65% of parts were in stock, at any given yeah, point. Yeah, because these are all just... Specialized. Part, right. Yes. Parts made uh -huh. specifically for the shuttle. And they're creating their own supply shortage yeah. by, by, by having so many pump flights. out this, yeah, this yeah. level. So they would take it from another shuttle. So, yeah, like, if one is I mean, on the would. ground, you take that to put it in the one that's going to go up in space, I right? Mean, that, that happens in my job. Like, oh, we've, yeah. got, we've got the next one ready to go. I'll just take the O-ring mm -hmm. out of this one mm -hmm. since... Since it's not gonna, we're not gonna do anything with it for another couple hours anyway. Right. 
So parts, but this is this is this a is shuttle. A space shuttle. <laughs> yes. So parts like bounced around on these shuttles back and forth, and this was getting so bad that if Challenger had not exploded and put a stop, a temporary stop, to the shuttle program, um, and the shuttle program had just continued as it was. Yeah, well, they would have reached a critical mass point around the spring of 1986 within just a few months of Challenger when all of the shuttles would be at a point where they would all need fully functioning parts, meaning they couldn't cannibalize. Yeah. So they it couldn't be done, basically. It was untenable. So, but they were like, we're going to try anyway. Yes. <laughs> Even though it doesn't. It's not physically possible. Like the the whole the whole point of the stock market is your company has to grow every quarter for its entire life. That's just not possible. But well, you it ha- is but you with worse it. and worse business practices and less and less regulation. Yeah. So you can see how this constant pressure being sent down from the top was hugely influential in every person's decision making. Mm-hmm. So regardless, some people like Roger Beaujolais. Uh, I might as well be going back to my pronunciation guide, make sure because it, it's spelled in in a way that I wouldn't have figured that was the pronunciation. But thank you, ChatGPT. Uh, <coughs> wouldn't give in to it <clears throat> when it came down to it. <clears throat> so, famously, on January twenty seventh, nineteen eighty six, this is the night before the Challenger launch. There was a teleconference. Then they talk about this in detail in um, the Netflix documentary. There was a teleconference between management at Marshall and Kennedy, and it included uh, Morton Thiokol. Thiokol's VP of Engineering, Bob Lund, told the others on the line, he's like, my team is not comfortable with the SRBs launching at temperatures below 53 degrees Fahrenheit, or 12 Celsius, because they were afraid that the O-rings would erode with catastrophic results. They pinpointed the exact thing that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And this got debated. And it dragged on. Other people people on the call were saying, like, look, there's not any proof this will happen. (laughs) Yes, there is. I Um, mean, it's just... Well, there wasn't... Like, it had not happened before. But the problem was you didn't want it to happen at all. (laughs) Because it was that bad, right? It was like, if we continue down this path, it will happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, and of course, and they, I'm sure that the all of these people absolutely just they were like, the one time in my life I did not want to be right about something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But they all, I mean, people knew that this was. Yeah. <sighs> and on the call is good old Larry Malloy. He was getting fed up to the point of saying, "Quote, for God's sake, Thiokol, when do you expect me to launch next April?" And well, if that's when the conditions are met, then... If that's when it's relatively safe, safe to do so. We're talking about launching the... <laughs> right. Yes, relative being the key word. But again, interestingly, the only shuttle <clears throat> disasters have been due to poor decision-making. Right, and pushing up a timeline or not... Yeah, Forcing yeah. something that shouldn't happen. Yeah. So, They're like, hey, we've spent... Billions of dollars on mm-hmm. this. It needs to go yeah. now. It's like, it's not ready. So Thiokol requested a break from the call with um, Kennedy and Marshall. That it's, Those are the, you know, Kennedy Space Center and Marshall Space Flight Center. They wanted to have a sidebar 
to debate the issue in-house of whether they were prepared to essentially royally piss off their biggest customer, right? Because they had the option then to like not sign off on this and say, no, this is unsafe. But if they did that with NASA people screaming at them saying, you know, basically either they alienate a huge customer. Sure. Or they go ahead with something that they're not comfortable with. Of course, the right answer is you alienate the fucking customer. Correct, because we're also talking about NASA, so there are going to be 10 companies that will immediately put in a bid right. to mm-hmm. be like, we can do this the way you want it right. done. Mm-hmm. And as a sidebar of my own, so I did once work for an engineering design yes, and manufacturing company that made components for government contractors, and the level to which... The customers would rant and rave about price and timeline and and the level to which management and my God, that manager was hideous um, to give them give into them was truly alarming. It reminds me an awful lot of this situation. And I just hope it didn't result in the same disaster. I wouldn't know it was on defense shit. and I have no idea. But um it's just, it, it's horrible. It's a very high-pressure environment. Uh, in the debate, so this is the internal Morton Thiokol debate, Roger Beaujolais and his fellow engineer Arnie Thompson, like, held firm. They're like, it is not safe to sign off on Challenger launching under these cold weather conditions for the next morning, right? Which is, of course, when it was not, and the Challenger exploded. Thompson went as far as to, like, he literally sat there and drew out to Thiokol management, like, here's the O-ring, here's the this, here's what will happen if this happens and this happens. And Beaujolais also tried to convince them using pictures he had taken of the O-rings failing. Look, look, see that? That's damage, that's damage. Does this look like how it's supposed to look Mm -hmm. after it's done? Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't. So this needs to change. Or we need a change. And they expressed that there was just a point where they realized, like, this is all, they're not, they're not gonna, they're not absorbing any of this. Um, And it was all above their pay grade. This was a management decision. Sure. So Thiokol exec Jerry Mason basically bullied Bob Lund into, he he told him, you have to think more like a manager and less like an engineer. (laughs) Yeah. If anyone tells you you have to think uh, more like a manager than anything else, it's probably incorrect. Well, essentially, what he's that's that's a code for money. Need, well, you need to you need to learn how to sell this mm-hmm. to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Even though we know it's not the right thing, mm-hmm. you gotta you gotta push it through. So Bob Lund changed his vote, and he was the sway vote that gave the go ahead. And I'm guessing because he's human, he probably felt like shit for the rest of his life over it. I mean, I don't see how you couldn't. Yeah. I yep. mean, because these aren't... Well, um, anyway, but yes, I'm sure he felt that. Uh, uh, ba- uh, Beaujolais would later tell the Rogers Commission, quote, I personally felt that management was under a lot of pressure to launch and that they made a very tough decision, but I didn't agree with it, end quote, which is a very measured response it right? is that's 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 toe in a line but hey good job balancing 
Like yeah. that's that's uh-huh. that is that's yeah. not that's not putting yourself in a corner or putting your your decision or the company in the corner. It's just like leave it vague. Well, and, he he was specific, but but didn't blame. Exactly. That's what I mean. That's what I mean by the vague yeah. part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So while it's really easy to point to that teleconference, like that was what killed the crew, right? Is that these people signed off on it or this one guy or whatever. But the truth is that to even to get to that damn point, so much was overlooked, right? This could have stopped day one with that flawed joint design. Sure. Years earlier, like literally like over a decade earlier. Um, it The first O-ring failure in launch a few years prior. Mm-hmm. Could have stopped there. This was the the challenger was the sixth time it had failed, and unfortunately, or, or more. I forget how what the grand total yeah. was. If it was eight or if it was anyway, multiple times. It had Every failed. Every single. Previously, thankfully, nobody. Yes. Was injured. But they could have changed course at any point. A thousand smaller choices were made sure. all along the way. It was chosen to not effectively <clears throat> respond to what was at its core. Bad engineering. I honestly, a flawed engineering design. And I'm not even, like, bullshitting. Like, I think about that, like, the jobs that I've had for the past ten years. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm executing a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll often think about, not often, occasionally think about that. Like, who came up with this? And, like, yeah. how in... And how, how good they, is it? How, how did how they how figure it, it out? Yeah, and how correct is How do they know it? how to build all this shit? Mm-hmm. Like, to make it, mm-hmm. you know, make it come to life. Like, it's... Absolutely. And this is where I, I can't imagine doing that for we're gonna send people we're gonna launch people into outer space. Right. Everybody like put your thinking caps on. Right. <laughs> and this is where this is going to circle us back to Columbia. Uh, episodes we did almost six years ago. We wow, we just dis- I know, you're, I know. You're, you're correct. We discussed the concept of the normalization of deviance. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, which the, is the, the first time I ever heard that the term, term was mm-hmm, in that mm-hmm. Challenger documentary. Like, like, uh, or n- no, it was when we discussed Columbia because we well, just discussed the normalization of deviance. This was six years ago, though. <laughs> so, this concept, the go, norm- back and, go back and listen to those episodes. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> this con that's when I was like, what the hell, Linda Ham? Do you remember like the one lady who was like, well, let's just not tell Kinda the, do, the because, astronauts? Yes. Mm-hmm. She was kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, she, she, I pictured her as like a, like a, like a complete total villain. <laughs> right. Like, like a cartoonish <laughs> villain almost. Right. And she didn't get fired after no. that either. She, she, she almost, NASA. not almost, she did come off that way as like a cartoonish villain. Uh, yes. But anyway, normalization <laughs> of demons. <laughs> This concept was named and studied, so normalization of deviance was named and studied by a sociologist and professor named Diane Vaughn when she published a book a decade after the disaster in 1996 called The Challenger Launch Decision. Sure. Seven years later, she served on the Columbia Accident Investigation Board because the same overarching organizational issue she found in NASA during 1986 was still present. In 2003, at the time of the Columbia disaster. Yeah, they're only, that's what, 17 years apart? That's not that long. It's less than 20 years, you know. 
That's a long enough of a gap to, you should be able to figure this out by now. But you know what it isn't long enough for? A complete turnover of the workforce. Because can I tell you, and I know from whence I speak, people serve decades in civil service, right? Yes, they do. And they won't retire until they're fucking forced to. (laughs) Literally about to die. And then thank fucking Christ they do, because they made my life miserable. What? Maybe I got slightly derailed there in that conversation. Anyway. Did did that come up in the discussion group? (laughs) (laughs) So in her research on the Challenger book, Diane Vaughn discovered that no decisions that were made that led to the disaster for the Challenger didn't conform to NASA requirements. In other words, no one went rogue. No one made a nefarious decision. Everything was per NASA standards. Because the launch happened. That's how we know nobody went rogue. Well, but but beyond that, like, the design, the whole thing... The fact that they didn't ca- they didn't change course when all during all those options, you know, when all those presented situations themselves. presented themselves, wasn't against NASA protocol. That, yeah, that's. Uh... So what she considered to be what Diane Vaughn considered to be the main issue at play at NASA was what she called normalization of deviance. Now she obviously states this best herself. I'm just going to quote a block here of her discussing this. From an interview, quote, social normalization of deviance means that people within the organization become so much accustomed to a deviant behavior that they don't consider it as deviant, despite the fact that they far exceed their own rules for elementary safety. But it is a complex process with some kind of organizational acceptance. The people outside see the situation as deviant, whereas the people inside get accustomed to it and do not. The more they do it, the more they get accustomed. For example, in the Challenger case, there were design flaws in the famous O-rings, although they considered that by design, the O-rings would not be damaged. In fact, it happened that they suffered some recurrent damage. The first time the O-rings were damaged, the engineers found a solution and decided the space transportation system to be flying with, quote, acceptable risk. The second time damage occurred, they thought that the trouble came from something else because in their mind, they believed they fixed the newest trouble. They again defined it as an acceptable risk and just kept monitoring the problem. And as they recurrently observed the problem with no consequence, they got to the point that flying with the flaw was normal and acceptable. Of course, after the accident, they were shocked and horrified as they saw what they'd done. End quote. Now I can describe my uh, upbringing as a normalization of deviance. (laughs) (laughs) No, deviance, not deviance. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, you were all deviant. And uh, I look back on certain things and wonder, like, it it is kind of surprising that we're all still alive. Well, not all of us, unfortunately. But uh, most of us. It is this idea that, like, (laughs) if you're from the... It's like, well, it didn't kill us the last time. (laughs) Right. That's the thing. If you're from the outside looking in, it's like... Clear as day how fucked it's up like, what something are you doing? is, right? Why Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but okay. from the inside, it's just like, we should do more of that. I'm going to give an example, <laughs> and it's a disgusting example, and also I don't want to alienate anybody in case this is like where, where an example. Okay. okay. Apparently, I've read this online. This is not something I experienced growing up. Have you ever heard of people having a poop stick? 
No. What is so, that? So, apparently... I just, do I, no, I'm not sure I want to know. So, I guess... <laughs> Essentially, and I don't know if this is due to maybe some people didn't have access to a plunger. I don't know. But apparently in some households, and I'm not talking like another culture per se. I'm talking like American, white American culture. That's my understanding anyway. Um, To like push stuff down in the toilet when needed. And it's like, but if a toilet backs up, you use a plunger. That's what you do. That's my opinion anyway. But so... When people got online and started like, oh yeah, the, oh the poop stick, haha, and people were like, what the fuck are you talking <laughs> yeah, I, about? I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> exactly. To them, it seemed perfectly normal. Oh yeah, doesn't everybody's house have one? And I'm other just people never were like, what the? That. F- <laughs> well, no, no, we well, didn't have a poop. They well, were not talking about a plunger. Correct. But they were talking about a literal stick, and yeah. it's just like, I'm no. sorry, what? But you know, and we've probably all experienced those times, especially like growing up when you're like, oh yeah, isn't this perfectly normal? And somebody's like, no, that's not at all no, normal. <laughs> that was just a really gross example and I apologize for using it. But anyway, it's what came to mind. Anyway, I can personally attest to the fact that it is, ex- and I'm sure you can too, it is exhausting to attempt time and time again to be the one person who stands up and says something isn't acceptable in a workplace. You get called the troublemaker. You get alienated by management. It's awful. I've been fired for doing exactly that. Yeah, exactly. Um, And probably most of us can. The problem is, of course, for many of us, if we fall into this pattern of normalizing deviance, right? No one is subjected to 20 G-forces before plummeting yes, over two yes. minutes to their death yeah, because of that. our normalization of <laughs> yeah. deviance, right? Like, you might have to just draft a, another letter. Right? Uh, like, <laughs> oh, you didn't get that package out on time or something. Like, you know, yeah. it's very different. You have to go to the UPS store again. And, yeah. And high stakes call for ridiculously high standard of attention to every single detail Every single time. And I can certainly imagine that it is even more exhausting than such... Sorry, I'm trying to read and went off script. And I can certainly imagine that that is even more exhausting than such a standard... This this sentence makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Just, it, it would be... Way way more exhausting when you know people's lives depend on it. Of course, and you and, can only take that every, for so long. And probably. let's let's face it, every shuttle attempt is a new thing. Mm-hmm. You're learning new things from what you did before. And... Absolutely, they were redesigning. Yes, for each new shuttle, yeah. right? Had so, to. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, the Challenger crew was killed by what kills literally millions. If not, well, yeah, millions of people every single year. The system. Right? Sure. You can look at individuals across the board and try to find the person or the individual fault. And, you know, especially here in the good old US of A, do we ever like putting responsibility on the individual? It's the individual's fault, right? But when the system is flawed. I was literally going to say the same thing. So, yes. But when the system itself is flawed... The only choice is to fix the system that made the fault a possibility in the first place. And the horrible thing is, of course, that NASA didn't do that. Certainly not in time. 
for the Challenger and not even in the time for Columbia. Well, I hate to inform you, but uh, black people have gone to Harvard, so that means systemic racism doesn't exist. Yeah, it's personal responsibility. If you don't get yourself into Harvard, like, what's your problem? I literally listened to one one named uh, Charles T. Kirk. Oh, Chuck Kirk. Charlie Kirk tried to make that argument. Chucky Kirk. To a black woman. How'd she which, take which, it? Uh, not very well. Good for her. <laughs> it should not be taken well. She almost took it as, like, I can't believe, like, he's saying this. <laughs> like, she wasn't the angry. audacity. No, she wasn't even angry. It was more like, this is unbelievable. Like, like that you're that <laughs> stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in its report, the Rogers Commission made multiple recommendations. So I'm going to list them and also talk about some of the responses by NASA. So obviously the first thing they're like, you know what? Redesign that joint on the SRB and the seals. It's like fix that. Fix that. Um, and test it better. And this, that definitely happened. It could not happen, right? That was the problem. And NASA did also modify some other components of the shuttle, including the addition of a flight escape system, right? So if something like that happened, again, there was the potential that the crew could escape. Uh, the council recommended the creation of an independent solid rocket motor design oversight committee formed by the National Research Council a review of the shuttle program's management structure, the inclusion of astronauts in NASA's management, which I can't believe they weren't doing already. Like, what a no-brainer that would seem like. Uh, A shuttle safety panel at NASA with representatives from safety, missions operations, and the astronaut office. An analysis of all criticality 1, 1R, 2, and 2R items and hazards. That that has to do with the redundancy um, system that with the O-rings and all that. The establishment of an Office of Safety, Reliability, and Quality Assurance at NASA. This was done, but the Columbia disaster showed the flaws in how it was set up and run. Um, Improved communications at NASA, which included some pretty pointed language about addressing culture, training, and or finding who maybe needed to get the boot because they were... Normalizing that deviance a little right. too much. I mean, taking way too many risks. Mm-hmm. Or or endorsing it, right? Like yeah. signing off on unsafe things. Uh, they recommended improvements for shuttle landing safety, reevaluation and renewed efforts to consider a flight abortion system for the shuttles. But we're outlawing abortion anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> it you know every every sperm is sacred, and so is every you know shuttle. So. We can't abort them. We cannot. Reevaluation of the flight rate at which these shuttles were expected to fly. They're like, okay, you're pushing this a little too hard. So Reagan's teacher in space program was ultimately not only just a failure, but a tragedy. But it was not formally canceled until 1990. So that asshole didn't cancel it during his presidency. Okay. Like, it did nothing like, happened yeah, in it. Right. But it wasn't formally ended. Right? Like a program, a government program has to either be conceived with an end date or it I has to be mean. ended officially. Okay. And he never Yeah. Well because he's not he probably forgot about it. Probably. He's senile. Um <laughs> NASA replaced the program with the rebranded 
Educator Astronaut Project, or EAP, in 1998. Now, the approach in this program was different than the original TISP, the Teacher in Space program. This time, the teachers were to become fully trained professional astronauts, trained as mission specialists. So they would go from soup to nuts as astronauts, first and foremost. And it would also be their livelihood. Not something they did on the side. Well, because you can't teach and train at the same time, yeah. absolutely. And then the idea was, no, you're not going to become a career astronaut. You're going to go back to the classroom <clears throat> and like teach about your your experience, um, but you will be a fully yeah. trained astronaut in, yeah. the, in the process. And in, also in your ending process, you will pass on a wealth of knowledge. Exactly. Onto... Yes, very much so. Which there is, that's a, there's a good argument to be made to do that, yeah, right? Of course. Because a lot of super smart yeah. people aren't great teachers. Correct. Right? It's not, because it's not what they're trained in. It's not what they do. It's just like they're too good at, it's like the, it's like Michael Jordan couldn't be a basketball coach. Like he tried, but he's just, he was just too good. How many people are there who it's so instinctual they don't know how to explain Yeah, or it. they're mm-hmm. so fucking great, like it's yeah. just natural to them. Exactly. Which for everybody else, it's it's like unnatural. Yep. So outside of this program, the Educator Astronaut Project, but certainly not at all coincidentally, also in 1998, Krista McAuliffe's backup, Barbara Morgan, was selected by NASA to train to become an astronaut. So she became, like, she was a NASA employee. She turned into a NASA employee. She trained as an astronaut, and she flew on Endeavor in August 2007 at age 55. Wow. And participated in a short ham radio Q&A session hosted by Dick Scobie's widow, June, Hmm. who's very active in a lot of the foundation work for Challenger, and there's information in that in the documentary on Netflix. Ultimately... It's basically impossible impossible to touch on every bit of the aftermath of Challenger, like including memorials and honors given to the crew. I'm pretty sure my first memory of learning of the disaster when I, when I was in the first grade and visited Krista McAuliffe Elementary School in Hastings, Minnesota, wow. where okay. I myself went to Kennedy Elementary School. And of course, as you've mentioned, there's also Gregory B. Jarvis Middle School in Mohawk, New York. And I'm sure... Like, there are who knows how many schools, buildings, museums, roads, parks, other things dedicated to individual crew members or the entire crew. So NASA's shuttle program continued for 25 years after Challenger's last flight, eventually ending on July 21st, 2011, when Atlantis landed at Kennedy Space Center, where it remains for this to this day for accountants like me to look at it and be like, yeah, it looks fake. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's what happened. <clears throat> that thing? That's the real one? That's a model. That's a model, clearly. <laughs> so when Krista McAuliffe boarded Challenger as, you know, sort of an everyman sort of a figure, sure. I'm not sure how many people then thought that a few decades later we'd have full-blown space tourism, which is where we are very much headed. Uh, yeah. Half and half, maybe. So you think that people back then were thinking that, yeah, there would be, like, space tourism? I think so. 
Yeah. I guess that's fair. They're like in the '60s. People thought of the Jetsons and stuff. So. I mean, people have been thinking of going to Mars since like back in the '40s and '50s. Well, it's, that was been... one of the. I think that was one of the things that came up. Yeah, as an option for NASA after the moonshot yeah. was Mars. I mean, there there was an interest in space before it was actually possible, and then sure. once it became possible, it was just like, okay, let's let the ideas flow. We'll start mm-hmm. with satellites and this and that, then humans, and then mm-hmm. the moon, and then. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So. That's true. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we do basically have full-blown space tourism. Um, arch-villain Elon Musk <laughs> now makes right. even more money by charging other rich assholes millions to fly into <laughs> like low-Earth orbit. <laughs> yes, exactly. And to the International Space Station. Um, we haven't quite yet gotten to for all mankind levels of space hotels. We have not. But we'll see how things go in the future. That's what they were thinking in the 60s. Yeah. That mm-hmm. by now, by the 2020s, we, should, we should be in all, for all mankind yeah. territory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like having hotels in space yep. and going to Mars and mm-hmm. going to the moon is just like, eh. And having sex with your best friend's oh, mom. Oh my god, that story. Thank god they uh, well, won't spoil anything. One of the creepiest fucking storylines. It was bad. That was a good show, but that was a bad storyline. <laughs> Ever. Um... As for NASA, among its multiple programs that are currently unfolding is the Artemis Project. Yes. So, Which we mentioned earlier yes. in this uh, so series. It is named after the Greek god Apollo's twin sister. Mm. Apollo, Artemis. Artemis, yeah. In which the agency is refocusing on another moonshot. This time with plans to get the first woman and first person of color on the moon. Did I say collar? Did no, I say person color. of collar? No, you said collar. <laughs> okay, collar. Okay, I was like, what collar? Collar. It's late. Um, it was also organized under yet another, this Artemis project, under yet another blowhard fuckwit of a president whose worst quality, this is Trump, of course. Correct. Whose worst quality is the inverse of what I said Reagan's best quality was in the first episode. You'll have to go back to connect the dots on that, because if I say it here, it'll probably be picked up by the NSA as a threat against a former president. So there we go. We're listening? Um, <laughs> we're listening? <laughs> Question mark? We need to catch up on... Um, we, we do. On succession. Anyway, uh, I'm sure everybody's fascinated by where we are in succession. They is. They is. Um. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> So the the project, Artemis, was initially set to launch in 2022, but has experienced delays due to costs and NASA's mismanagement of contractors. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The I mean, goal, it's... yeah, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about this. So the goal of Artemis is to further explore the moon, explore mining on it, because we're, you know, we, we've already abused Earth. So we need to right, we need to get go. those minerals. Yes, we need to keep <laughs> going need, to other to go places. To a, we need to go to a different celestial body. Yes, exactly. To drill some more. Exactly. Drill space drill. Yep. And potentially set up f- future human exploration of Mars. That's, I mean, I think that's what the whole point of this is. Not the whole point. It's just, it is part of it, though. Sure. Um, and also to be, that's going to have to be, all the things I've seen on going to Mars, they're all like, we have to build like something on the moon. You to, can't go directly from Earth to... No. Yeah. There's got to be... Like, a supply drop is basically what they'd be doing in... Right. You know, another launch, essentially. Mm-hmm. 
to cut down the time to because right. they said I think they say it takes at least six months to get to Mars. I was gonna say it's like a hu- huge like that. length and yeah. just huge to get there to cover. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the crew of Artemis Two, which despite its name is set to be the first mission back to the moon, was named on April third of this year. So in another little bit of mm-hmm. serendipitous timing for our pod, and the crew consists of four people. Interestingly, all of whom are in their 40s. So they're a little yeah, bit they're older, a little older. Yeah. than like the people who are largely in their 30s back in the shuttle days, at least in Challenger. This is the, this is the last uh, vestige of uh, Gen X. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're going to go to the moon, damn it. Right? So there's Commander Reed Wiseman, a former fighter pilot, member of Makes NASA's sense. 2009 astronaut class, he spent almost six months aboard the ISS, the International Space Station, in 2014. Pilot Victor Glover, who is a U.S. Navy captain and class of 2013 astronaut, he did fly aboard SpaceX's first operational crewed space flight and is set to become the first black person and person of color on the moon. It's been all white men up to this point. Um, mission specialist Christina Koch who was also in the 2013 NASA class and who spent nearly a year on the ISS in 2019. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I read that she holds the record for a woman for the longest time spent on the ISS in a single run. And who is set to become the first woman on the moon. And mission specialist Jeremy Hansen, a colonel in the Royal Canadian Air Force, who is participating as part of an agreement between NASA and the Canadian Space Agency, or CSA, and he is set to become the first Canadian on the moon, eh? Eh? He's an Argonaut, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I hope that's the last time I name this crew on this pod. Yeah. Um, Or any future space crew of any future NASA mission. Because if I do name them or talk about their lives again, it won't be for good reason. Right? It was, or, I mean, we could mention it. Oh, sure, for like, whatever. Like, but hey, I mean they, as they, a... They discovered diamonds on the moon. Right. I mean as a topic, obviously. So it was 17 years in between the Challenger and Columbia tragedies. And by 2024, which is when Artemis II is currently set to launch, it will be 21 years between say, Artemis yeah. and Columbia, or Columbia and Artemis. Hopefully, NASA in those 21 years learned to address... The normalization of deviance in their agency culture that they were not able to address in the 17 years between the shuttle disasters. Each of the 14 deaths in U.S. spaceflight were entirely preventable. And I certainly hope no more are ever added to that number. Yeah. So, Godspeed and good luck, Artemis 2 crew. And I hope all goes well. Um, so that was Challenger Part 4, The Future is Not Free. I took that quote from Fuckface Reagan. Um, he basically was saying it in his, like... (laughs) Yeah, sometimes we need to kill astronauts for the future. Yes, yes, that's exactly what he said. (laughs) But I like to, I like to think of that, that phrase in multiple meanings. I'm sure, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah, and this was said in 1986, so when you know what he's a shit actor because in all of his little state of the union addresses and shit he's fucking acting and you can tell of course but you couldn't tell back then 
I guess it was lower standards of acting back then. Well, it was it was kind of <laughs> well, it was kind of new. I mean, and every it was like grainy TV. <laughs> every major politician is an actor to some extent, but he was like an actor, actor. Like you know, he was famous for mostly like TV. By he the time it came around, movies, but he did, but, yeah. but mm-hmm. he did a couple of movies that, but he was mostly like a. But still, yeah, you look back at it, and it's like he was reading lines. And, yeah, because that somebody speech... had to come up like, yeah, like something about a wall and like, mm-hmm. and yes, like this is it. And the the thing is, like, his speeches are also devoid of any human emotion. They're acting. He's acting sure. as though it matters. Yeah. You can tell it doesn't matter to him at all. And maybe I'm projecting because I hate him. It mattered to but... uh, tens of millions of Americans, I well, can tell exactly. you that. Exactly. So, still does. Well, the thing is, like, if... I get the idea of, like, speechwriters and stuff. I, I get it. I get it. But really, like, how effective would it really be if a president was like, you know what? State of the Union address... I'm going unscripted and just talk to the American public about being like, you know how many thousands of children have died of gun violence in this country? Huh? And we're over here worrying. You know what? I'd like, I'd love to see a president get fucking angry and swear in a state of the union address because you know what? That would show emotion. Sure. A genuine emotion. And care. But anyway, now I'm just going off on dipshit he's dead he's dead he's been dead thank, for a while now thank non-existent <laughs> he's God. been dead almost 20 years i believe he died in 2004 i think you're right um, i was just not aware of him back then i was a slow developer i was a little kid socialism. i obviously did not understand politics at the t- at this time i oh, remember of Challenger, yeah. yes mm-hmm. i remember him being president mm-hmm. uh, i remember most people loving him except for like my parents and my parents friends and stuff like that <laughs> they, they did not Mm. Um, and I kind of remember the the first Bush 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 Senior. I remember that's the first time I remember having any awareness yeah. of politics was was Daddy Bush. But this is a man talk about this would be an interesting like if I could go back like as I am now to experience it yeah. <laughs> to go back to like 1986 and like walk around for like a week and be like wow things are either things are great or things are fucked up it's gonna be <laughs> or things are greatly fucked up yeah. It would be it would be interesting. I would always like to go back to my birth year, yeah, and just hang around for like a week. See what it was <laughs> like, like. What world you like were what, born into? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like what was going on when I uh, when I when I made my debut? A lot of good disco. Sure. Yeah. Plenty of That's that. For sure. Limp Biscuit was not a thing yet. <laughs> it was Limp Biscuit. <laughs> yeah, they were. They would have been born by then. I would they would. Imagine. Yes, they were. They were definitely. Yeah. Fred Durst was kicking around like age 10 or something something huh? like that probably <laughs> anyway not to get off on a limp biscuit tangent <laughs> as we are one to do <laughs> but uh yeah this whole thing is just fucking sad mm-hmm. and it's it's weird having actually seen have having actually have seen it i don't know what i'm trying to say i saw it <laughs> oh, you, you, you witnessed the yeah. explosion, right? Or yeah. the disaster because... And, and so did fucking millions of other kids. Like, all of my mm-hmm. uh, best friends that I grew up with and stuff like that, people mm-hmm. that I met later in life, you know, in my 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. you know, being like, when that topic comes up, it's like, hey, were you watching that? They're like, yeah, we were watching it. It was like, everybody was watching sure. it. You know, if you were in school, college or... 
Right. Junior high, high school, mm-hmm. grade school, whatever. Like, there was a pretty good chance you saw it. So. And, and the thing is, I think the thing that got me nervous when I was wrapping up this script is I was reading a little bit about Artemis and they were talking about how it's like, um, uh, what do they call it? <laughs> you know, a collaboration or a you know, cross project between government and private industry. Sure. And <clears throat> it made me nervous. I mean, I'm well aware that there are government contracts and stuff like that. But there's like more and more this cross section or, or this, um, that's not the right word, this integration of commercial and governmental space exploration that does not make me hopeful no. <laughs> for a lesser chance of disaster. No, there's gonna be a there's gonna be a greater chance if a private corporation's involved. Like that, that's just automatic. So I hope I am wrong about this. Yeah. Oh, we. But yes. I think there is a chance that, especially, yeah. we've been going into low Earth orbit for a very long time now. You know, through the ISS yeah, and but, all that. I mean, there's a chance even if it was strictly NASA or if it was strictly SpaceX. There, there would be. Um, I don't. So now that you know, they're talking about going m- more ambitious projects now, mm-hmm. right? Going back to the moon, potentially to Mars, all that stuff. I have a bad feeling about it, and I don't like having a bad feeling about it, because I'm not sure, after knowing all this, that I trust, actually, I know I don't trust the oversight <laughs> Correct. Um, of it, so I am afraid that there is a decent chance that we will witness another yeah, I'll, space I'll put disaster. It, I'll put it this way, I'm hoping we can trust what's happening, what's going to happen with this, um... Because you're right, there is a new fever for space exploration, which I think is great. Um, I, I think that space exploration is, is having, good and important. I do not think space tourism is good or important. No, but, but having a private company involved in doing it, and it's, it's, it's just going to be... like and, it's, it's, and the people who run these private companies are some of the most psychotic humans on the face of the earth. Right. I would not trust Elon Musk to no, feed our cats. No, I wouldn't. No. And actually, that's, or Jeff that's Bezos. A, yeah, exactly. And that's actually a bad example because I we obviously love our cats. I would say, uh, um, I wouldn't trust them to. I don't know, deliver my Grubhub order. Like, no, I definitely wouldn't trust them with that. Like, uh, they're I I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them. And we are trusting their companies, their money grubbing little icky companies, to you know, to. Be involved in a really major way, yeah, as the space future exploration. Space. But that'll yeah. be uh, hopefully that will not be a future episode. I, I really hope. I really hope for everybody's sake who is on board all of those missions. Um, but I'll tell you, I'm like now. I mean, I know we did Columbia a while back, but then just now working kind of backwards and going to Challenger. Like, I might start following these launches just to be like. Oh, we can. Ooh, you know, yeah. when they when they're successful and when the missions are successful, because I don't know. I mean, just by sheer numbers, we're probably not. Not not going to we have not seen the end of aerospace disasters, so probably not, yeah, which sucks. Well, so, rapid, on that cheery note, yes. <laughs> putting a bow around it. Mm-hmm. This is the 
hopefully forever this is the final space disaster that we've the final in space have we covered all the soviet shit i believe we have did we do yuri gagarin we did, did, we... <laughs> did well we uh, like yeah we did the soyuz one and the soyuz uh-huh. 11 um soyuz 11 something like that whatever <laughs> We, we've done a, we, we have done Apollo 13 in yeah. a... Well, um, we did Apollo 1, obviously. Yes. We did Apollo 13 in like a Christmas episode or something like that. It was like Miracle that. So. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we've done... Let's hope. All of them. And if you're listening to this 100 years in the future, you can laugh at how wrong we were potentially. Or, or, or how hopeful we were. Or how negative we were, and no reason to be. I'm a glasses half full kind of guy. Oh, oh, are you? Oh, are you? I am because I need another beer, <laughs> and it will be full. <laughs> so, that was the Challenger Part Four. The future is not free. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. And we'll see you next week.